You are listening to Tech Nuggets and Thoughts Podcast, the show that focuses on principles and practices of coding and some interesting trivia around technology. We discuss all those things that a developer needs to know to craft better software. Listen to Nikhil, Christian, Siddesh, Mandar talk about their experiences and learning which will make you a better developer. Welcome to the sixth episode of Tech Nuggets and Thoughts. We shall continue our discussion on testing from the previous episode. The points that we've been discussing about uh, reaching out to other systems, this adds to the previous uh, point of princip- first principle of writing tests. This adds to repeatability. Mm-hmm. So unless the test is repeatable, unless it fails every time or unless it passes every time, we cannot trust the test. Yeah. So basically, try avoiding flaky test. Yeah. Yes. Make sure the tests are not flaky. Now, flaky means test that sometimes pass and then sometimes fail. Uh, you should not be in a situation with your team that you look at Jenkins, you see tests are red, and the first thing you, a thing you think is, uh, let's just rerun them. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are some uh, reasons which might you know uh, make this flakiness creep in, like uh, things that are related to time. Like oh yes, so time-based things, then uh, network-related things which we can probably try to avoid consciously but then there is something that also makes a test flaky and that is multi-threading hmm. all these things are important um, so regarding time to just give you some funny examples that I encountered during my career tests that only would run in the UK but not anywhere else because of time zone tests that would run any day of the year except someday in September or October and someday in March. That's for daylight saving. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know about you. The, the assumption that a day always has 24 hours does not hold true. When daylight savings are active, there are days that have 23 hours and days that have 25 hours in your time zone. Mm-hmm. Calendar is a very funny thing, not just time. Because there is this... Uh, there are times, there are countries when they adjusted their clocks and actually the difference between a day is actually five minutes or five seconds for them. So when this is, this is uh, built into, for example, in Java's calendar library, it knows about this. So when we calculate this, you'll see this interesting things happen. Uh, yeah, like uh, the Java calendar um, look it up. is the Gregorian calendar. But there's more sophisticated calendars available implementing the same API. Um, did you know that in, I think it was 1582, 10 days were removed from a calendar? Hmm. 10 days? Yes, 10 days. And this was done by Pope Gregory. Before that, it was a Julian calendar. After that, it was a Gregorian calendar named after Pope Gregory. And he wanted to fix two problems. One problem was a problem with farming. In Europe, you have seasons, and these seasons are relatively precise. And when your calendar is off by 10 days, then this is a problem for farming. And uh, the other problem he wanted to fix is these um, religious dates, they were actually based on a lunar calendar, and somehow the calendar was off. So he had to fix this. The problem was caused by the Julian calendar being not precise enough regarding leap years. And the imprecision of the Julian calendar from about 50 B 
BC when Julius Caesar had created that calendar and um, Pope Gregory in 1582 it was about 10 days off. So those 10 days were removed from the calendar. 4th of October was followed by 15th of October, if I remember correctly. <laughs> the USA did not do that. Well, at that time they didn't exist, but um, whatever pilgrims went to America and then founded the USA, they didn't do this until about 200 years later. So they actually had to remove 11 days from the calendar <laughs> because there was one leap day too much that they actually followed. Now, now do this when 24 uh, into 60 into 60 equal to one day and then we'll face all such problems. Exactly, yeah. don't, don't do that. Um, Google has a very interesting blog article where they explain how they deal with leap seconds. The leap seconds are typically inserted or removed from the 31st of December and because it is a problem for some systems, the time team in Google uses something they call smear where they slice the second into lots of microseconds and spread it out in a flattened Gaussian curve around the days before and after 12th of December to minimize the potential risk for systems that can't properly deal with such things. Oh. The Gaussian curve actually has a use. <laughs> <laughs> it has lots of use actually. Yeah. Never came across, good to know. Wow. So that, that's about time. And um, so if you have to develop systems with time, you probably cannot test enough. Mm. <laughs> uh, actually, same goes for multi-threading as well. The scenarios that can occur when a lot of threads are operating on a shared object are numerous and it's not always easy to replicate them. The easiest way to deal with it probably is to not share objects. Yes, functional programming. <laughs> Do functional yeah. programming. Uh, have state. How about using yeah. uh, fixtures? Can those can that make the so like having annotations like at before and after? Well, they they serve test isolation, mm -hmm. but they do not help us finding multi-threading problems. They make multi-threading problems and they actually rug them under the carpet. Okay, but actually that means that tests should run in any order. Yes. I, it should be possible. Tests should be. I like red test randomization in the sense of the sequence of tests is going to be randomized by the framework. Um, you know, do that with JUnit, do that with the scenarios in Cucumber, see if they still run the same way. Yeah, that's, that's again part of uh, they should be isolated, exactly. meaning that they should not depend on each other. Yeah, They should run parallelly in multiple threads. Yes, if they are isolated, then test parallelization is the next thing. Would that make it fast? Yes, Even definitely. Yes. So already unit tests are supposed to be fast and if you run them parallelly. So, I mean, why I'm asking this that you, should you target them in that way that yeah. I need to run them? But if, if you support test parallelization, you bring the test isolation thing on a next level. When we talk about test isolation, we typically mean that the result of one test should not influence any other test. Which means if you run tests in any sequence, you should always get the same results. Also, if you omit tests, any number of them, 
those tests that are still run should produce the same results no matter which and how many other tests you have omitted. As soon as you run tests in parallel, you need isolation basically not only in space but also in time. For example, you might have a test that creates a user, does something with the user and then removes the user for isolation. The next test again creates that same user, does something it and removes it for isolation. What if you run these two tests in parallel? That's what I mean. You now need to also isolate in space-time and not only in one of them, in both. So spin up two in-memory databases to operate on it. Maybe spin up in-memory databases as many as you have threads. Yeah, manage them via thread local. Uh, that's one possible solution. Another, that's a technical solution. You can have a solution based on the data that you say that each test has to create unique data and operate on unique data. Um, that's another approach. And I'm, I'm sure that um, there are approaches out there which I haven't encountered Which yet. means no copy-paste. Unique data means no copy-paste in tests. Uh, no <laughs> no copy-paste anywhere. <laughs> I thought we covered that already. <laughs> So, Nikhil, you were talking about principle. Uh, is there any other principle that you would like to share regarding testing? There's one very interesting thing. It's called VET. Okay. So, we talk about, when we talk about code, we talk about dry. Right? Don't repeat yourself. So, we have to make sure when we are writing production code that we do not repeat the same uh, block of code anywhere and reuse it as much as possible by extracting it, make, making methods around it or whatever applies. In tests, uh, it probably at times helps to not do that because that allows us to have separate maybe data, maybe databases, uh, spinning it up or uh, shutting it down or uh, even, the, even the amount of effort that we would spend in isolating or extracting common things reduces when we, when we focus on not for, uh, enforcing dry on unit tests. That does not mean that we write bad tests. It just means that we do not actively enforce try. And sometimes it is termed as wet, just as an opposite of try. People and it makes perfect sense if you think of how test-driven development evolves production code and how it evolves test code. There's something that Robert C. Martin says about this, which is the following. As the tests get more specific, the code gets more generic. And mm. the specific part reflects the wet part. The generic part reflects the dry part. We introduce abstractions like methods, classes, and all those principles in order to dry the code. Don't repeat yourself. Remove redundancy. In tests, we want redundancy. We don't want redundancy on repeatable flows but we certainly want redundancy between test cases on data. So, uh, basically now, how does one ensure that he really has a good test coverage? Because code coverage is a very tricky thing. Executing something is different and verifying something is different. Christian has a very good analogy actually, if I remember regarding a bulb. Could you share that? Yeah, it's like... Um, when you want to test something, the 
execution is like switching your light switch and the verification is looking at the bulb. Exactly. And by just having perform operated the switch, you don't know whether the bulb is actually working or not, or whether the grid has power or not. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And a, a test that doesn't verify is like just operating the switch without looking at the bulb. <laughs> so co- core coverage can be very tricky. Uh, exactly. Idea to guess. So how do you ensure that you have? Yeah, because measuring code coverage is like checking if you've operated all the switches. If you did not operate the switch, you definitely have not verified the bulb. But if you operated the switch, you only know you could have verified the bulb. You don't know whether you actually looked at the bulb. Okay, in this case, even TDD is very helpful then because you are actually asserting every behavior, right? Yes, because first I look at the bulb and (laughs) see it's not on. That's my failing test that I first have to write according to the laws. Then I implement the switch and operate it and now the bulb is on. And then I know, okay, it's working. The verification is there. But that, that decays. That's something that we have to keep in mind. As long as the project runs, the more of that actually decays and rots inevitably just because of passing time and people changing stuff. So how do we ensure this coverage, not just of execution, but the coverage of verification? And there's a new concept coming up for that, which is mutation testing, where you have a library that will take your tests, take your production code, run the test, see, okay, everything is green. Then it takes the production code and starts changing it. By itself? And sees, yes, by itself, and sees... Do the tests still pass? Oh, shit. Yeah. That's bad. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's, I, I don't call it bad, I, I call it badass. That's the badass form of verifying stuff. Yeah? Yeah. It's still relatively new. Um, I, yeah. I, I see potential of this kind of thing uh, for hack intelligence. Mm. That's an interesting thing. I've never thought of mutation testing from the perspective of security. I've thought of it from the perspective of safety already, but that, that's a very interesting perspective. Because for me, that's a new perspective. I, I currently I don't have a spontaneous answer to it, but I will take it as a homework mm. from this podcast that I'm going to think about this. <laughs> Is there a tool that does this right now? Um, there are tools. Um, I would have to Google it. <laughs> Meanwhile, um, what you what you pointed out actually is I find at times is a missing feature in testing frameworks. So testing frameworks or even coverage frameworks tell us that a particular code or line or a statement or a path through the code was executed, but they don't tell us if there was any assert in the test at all. I mean, if there was a way to find out if every test block has at least one assert statement. That would be really, really helpful and probably I find it. Just, I don't think it is hard because the assertion library usually is part of part of the testing framework, like in JNet. Uh, maybe in Mocha, there are plugins that, that follow a particular interface for assertions. But I don't know, we don't have a way of today identifying if there's an assertion in, inside the test. Now that Christian is already looking for tools, let's yeah, jump to that topic. Yeah. I just want to cover one more bit about it. So, 
coverage is easy to fake that's that's true coverage is very easy to fake but coverage is still a measure that we can rely on as a as a criteria at least i, I mean with the faith that people whoever developers are writing the test will write assertions with this faith it's a it's a criteria that we can potentially use to see that we have covered enough paths or flows to the code yeah so i i use coverage i love coverage um so how to deal with that risk? That risk is a cultural thing that has to be addressed. Yeah? But, um, well, a whole, uh, um, sorry, a high coverage, like 100%, does not guarantee that there are assertions. A low coverage guarantees that there are no assertions. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it means that um, a low value of the coverage metric has a high meaning. The high value does not necessarily have a high meaning, it can have a low meaning, but um, that's what we then find out with mutation testing. And I just Googled Jumble is one Jumble. of those frameworks. Nice. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, sorry, so how high is high enough? Is it Pareto, something we can derive from there? Um, Pareto is something I like to apply to legacy code. Because in a legacy code, um, it is very difficult to achieve 100% coverage. Uh, what is Pareto? Pareto is the 80-20 rule. And um, you can apply it on a lot of things. For example, on project and project management, we say that 80% of the effort are spent on only 20% of the project and 20% of the effort are spent on 80% of the project. And Pareto for this would mean that, um, well, maybe 80% or something like that are sufficient because for 80% of the coverage, I need to spend only 20% of the effort and for the remaining 20% of the coverage, I have to spend 80% of the effort. <coughs> and for legacy code, I think that's true. It's true because legacy code that's not written test-driven is not decoupled and therefore not testable. So it's difficult to write tests for some of the code. Um, for newly written code, I wouldn't settle for anything less than 100% in the application partition. The main partition can have less. For example, if you have a Spring application, if your main is tested or not, your main is just going to be one line. I don't mind about that. Yeah? That's going to be indirectly covered by so many other things. But the application itself, for new code, I wouldn't settle for anything less than 100%. There's just a thought that I would like to share. When, when I'm working with teams, I usually ask, I, I usually set 80% as a gating criteria for, for any code that has to go to production. But since it's easy to fake, I uh, believe in asking another question. I term it as peer confidence because ultimately con coverage is me meant to be confidence. So uh, the, the question is this, that would your peer or, or someone, let's say someone's code is going to production, this is a question for the peer of this developer, like would you be confident to support this code in production without the developer? So it's a it's a test since since it's a matter of confidence which cannot directly be assigned a number. Uh, the question or the answer is does not have a number, but peer confidence is is a, a metric that not not a measurable metric of course, but a sense sense metric that we can probably use. Ask other developers, other peers, how confident are they in supporting a developer's code in production without in the absence of that developer. That's a measure that tells us how the team believes in their code written by a developer over and above the tests and coverage that, did, that the developer delivers. That's a lovely thing. 
because it will automatically take into account the criticality of the product. Now, if, if you know if your product is down for 10 minutes per day, nothing is going to happen, your confidence will be different from if you know this is a pacemaker. <laughs> and it's okay, yeah? Um, I think it's okay that in um, certain applications we apply less scrutiny and in other applications we apply more scrutiny because there is just a difference in criticality. And that difference in criticality has to be reflected in the project. If we treat everything with the same criticality, we either risk that um, critical projects will have less scrutiny than they need and then problems will arise from that, or we apply scrutiny on projects where the scrutiny is more expensive than the project justifies. So there's always a sweet spot of scrutiny for business which depends on things like criticality. And the peer confidence metric implicitly takes it into account. It's a lovely thing. Um, I said I would not settle for anything less than 100%. But I would be very careful writing 100% or any other number as a written metric for developers to forcefully apply. The reason why is I've experienced the following thing. A company, a very renowned company, was hired by another company to develop tests for them, as an example, a framework and example tests. And they wrote down in the contract 87.5% coverage for a specific module. So what was the result of that? A test that called the create file function without any assertion. <laughs> yeah, and I, I experienced something else not caused by coverage and therefore just executing operating the switch without asserting looking at the bulb I experienced a similar thing with mocking I once looked at had code where I said what, what is this mock doing and I'm, this mock looked so senseless I just changed the return statement of the function to return null and all tests still passed. If you mock too much, you have a problem. And so one of the reasons why I don't like mocking is already what we discussed about structure and unit and what are the boundaries and you go too much fine grain and then you have to modify too much code when the test code when you refactor. But there's more to it. Every time you mock, a kitten dies. <laughs> Actually, obviously, not a kitten dies, but every time you mock, you lose coverage. Yeah. Just to add to that, actually, I think of mocking as programmable stubs. So essentially, we are specifying what the stub should do when something happens in the test. It's almost as if writing the production code, because that's what the code was supposed to do. So yes. we're replicating the logic in the test the logic that is already there in the, in the code. Exactly. And um, so, so mocks are a duplication. People think that they actually isolate using mocks, but the opposite is the case. With mocks, we duplicate behavior and structure into the test. Structure mm -hmm. and behavior that should be in the production code are replicated in the test. And then if for a good reason I change behavior, I now have to change it in two places. 
if for a good reason I change structure, I now have to change it in two places. So from a modeling perspective, tests always inevitably couple to the provided interface of the unit under test. There is no way around this. They have to deal with the unit under test. The unit under test has to provide an interface for that, so that coupling is inevitable. But when I mock, I also couple my tests to the required interfaces of my unit under test. I just doubled or tripled the contact surface, the structural contact surface between my production code and my test code. And that has an impact, a negative impact on refactoring. All right. On that note, let's conclude today's podcast. We'll continue this discussion in the next episode. This is Nikhil signing out. This is Christian signing out. This is Sudesh signing out. This is Mandar signing out.